Hello and welcome to this latest episode of our Tech Disputes podcast series. In this episode, we're going to be looking at software audit disputes and data licensing disputes. My name is Andrew Moyer. I'm a lawyer specialising in intellectual property and cybersecurity here at Herbert Smith Freehills. I'm joined today by my colleagues Heather Newton and Peter Dalton. So we're seeing increasing numbers of disputes arising in relation to the software and data licenses, particularly off the back of audits. Um, and as we see more digital transformation and use of data across lots of business sectors, there's often increasing reliance on third-party software and data services. Given the particularly large user base and scope of use of data that we're seeing there, it's increasingly difficult for legal compliance and IT teams to keep track of their usage. If you couple that with the established auditing processes and the of the software vendors, it means it's quite easy to see how disputes can arise in this space. All of that leads to a substantial risk of non-compliance for customers or that the software vendors are missing out on license fees that they're properly due. So where you are using third-party software or data, it's going to usually be based on the terms of some sort of written license. It's really key to understand the important metrics that you see in those types of licenses. So, so Pete, what are the sorts of key metrics that vendors are using to base their licenses around and, and that can lead to these disputes? Thanks, Andrew. So first of all, it's probably important to clear up what sort of licenses we're talking about in this context. So the sort of licenses you normally see being the subject of these audit disputes are your sort of larger scale enterprise licenses. So that would be for back office products or databases or product deployments which are integrated into services offered by the customer. It's those larger scale software licenses that typically lead to these audit disputes. Each license is different, but there are certain clauses which tend to be more important from a compliance perspective, I think, and these are more likely to lead to the issues and disputes that we tend to see in the event of an audit. A key theme coming up in all of them is that a lot of these metrics can be quite hard to track by IT and compliance teams during the life cycle of a contract. And that is reflected in the disputes that arise in the event of an audit. So one of, the, one of the restrictions we tend to see around access, so how the customer can actually access and deploy the software across its estate. Sometimes it will have to obtain license keys from a certain portal or download them from a certain area of the site. And sometimes employees will have to click through license terms to agree to the software before it's actually activated on their system. In that area, disputes are perhaps a bit less common, but they do happen, especially if IT has the ability to install the software without going through that proper process, or if employees are accessing it without clicking through relevant terms and conditions when they do so. Another key metric we see a lot of are a purpose clause, which limits the purpose to which the software can be put. That's, I think, especially common where a licensed component is intended to be used as part of an integrated software system, so into a larger software deployment. And the software may, be, may then be limited in terms of how it is used within that overall system and the way the customer can use the data from it. That's especially common, actually, in data licenses, where the uses of the data onward within the organization, and especially to third parties, is often strictly defined. And these provisions are often the subject of disputes. I think we see that quite a lot, either because the purpose isn't sufficiently defined or clear in the contract, or, and especially this happens in older contracts, the use case may have changed over the years, either because the customer has changed its business or because there's been intervening technical developments. And the contract often doesn't necessarily keep up with these. So when you come to do the audit, you're looking back at 
potentially an older license which was entered into when the software was first obtained and the purpose no longer reflects what it's being used to, which can lead to disputes over whether the use is licensed and also whether there was a intervening variation of that purpose clause over the years that the software has been used by the organization. Another metric we see a lot of disputes around are along around the number of users. So it's common to see licenses defined by how many seats can use the software. That can be done in terms of actual number of people, or also potentially on the number of CPU cores which are allowed to run the software. And that's especially the case in older licenses. And that can be an issue in modern sort of multi-core systems and in virtualized environments, which may not have been envisaged at all when the license was entered into. And vendors often take the view that each virtualized use is another use case for license purposes and needs another license. And that can very quickly lead to over-deployment. But even without that, it's generally quite hard often for IT departments to keep track of how many seats they've deployed the software to across their estate. And it's very common to see disputes around that when you get to an audit. There can also be limits on the number of instances or concurrent users uh, using a software at any one time, and that can be difficult for IT departments to track and it's easy to exceed. There can also be geographical restrictions in terms of where the software can be deployed. And that's quite common in certain licenses, and especially I think in data licenses, where it's quite easy to see the data, see terms that say data can only be used in a certain jurisdiction. And again, it's quite difficult for IT departments to keep track of. Volume of processing can also be a metric we see in some licenses, which limits perhaps the use of the software to a number of transactions or volumes of data that can be processed. Uh, it's potentially less common to see disputes around that, but they can occur in respect of specific software products, uh, especially those that tend to be offered as a service by vendors potentially. Payment clauses can also be an issue. Payment can be based on a whole number of different metrics. Some might be a yearly fee for seat or user, et cetera. Others might be based on the volume of processing or, or other metrics. And that can lead to shortfalls, which can be claimed as part of an audit, in addition to allegations that the software has been overdeployed or used outside of the terms of the license. Um, something I sort of prefaced earlier, sometimes there's difficulty in actually identifying the correct contract as well, because often these contracts are put in place and can stay in place for a number of years. It's not uncommon to see licenses maybe a decade old, and there may be multiple subsequent orders and order forms and variations placed after the agreement was signed. Sometimes which come with new terms and conditions in respect of those specific orders, sometimes which may purport to vary the older terms in the agreement. And it can be quite hard to piece that all together and work out which software is actually licensed under which terms at what time, because an order is, is looking backwards and it may be actually that the, the contract has changed over time and even the current version is not the right one when looking at what was in place when the software was first over deployed. Sometimes vendors can also seek to have their terms automatically update based on the latest terms that are published on their website. That's especially common, I think, in user licenses for the individual. And again, it can be an issue working out what version was on their site at what time within the, the history of the, of the audit period. And often another issue we just come across is there can be a lot of ambiguity in these licenses, again, especially in older ones, particularly a problem with purpose clauses and clause relating to the number of cores which can be used. And it's quite common to see quite vague clauses around the purpose, which are then hard to define and understand when applying it to the current way in which the software is used.
audit clauses are themselves often also areas of disagreement. So when can a vendor perform the audit? How long can they take? What access requirements do they need? And what information must be given to them? And that can often be an area of dispute when you're in a semi-contentious audit situation. Obviously, to summarize all that, the key to avoiding these sorts of disputes is to try and be aware of these key metrics through the life cycle of the contract and try and ensure that the software deployment remains within them. But as I noted at the start, it can be quite difficult for IT and compliance teams to do that. Andrew, how does all that fit in with the triggers that we often see for audits? So there's quite a few things that we see triggering um, audits. So sometimes it can be just be the result of a usual vendor auditing cycle. So as you mentioned, Pete, the licenses normally provide for a periodic audit by the vendors. So the trigger for an audit can often simply be that that period has, has, has come around again for the audit. Um, but we also see other things taking place that can trigger them. So another key one is, is often business announcements. So if you're going through an acquisition or a merger or a divestment or you know, launching a new product or service or entering into a joint venture, all that sort of stuff can be publicized and vendors can look at that and um, see that any um, you know, business or organization could have an effect on, on the usage of its software. And that then results in the, the audit request coming through. Sometimes we see other sort of business-driven reasons as well. So sometimes if a customer is wants actually to move to a new software provider or embarks on a new RFP or, or tender process, and for some reason the existing vendor isn't included in that, that can often trigger an audit because obviously the vendor is, is seeking really just to, to get the most out of the remaining relationship before, it, before you transition off the software. One other thing that we see as well is that some software is designed to phone home. So in other words, when it's used, um, it is actually reporting back via the internet uh, what that usage is. And, and sometimes um, vendors can aggregate that information and, and, and at least to a suspicion that actually there's over-deployment or over-use. That can then obviously trigger an audit as well. So there's a whole myriad of reasons, really. But I mean, what happens next is important too. So Heather, what, can you run us through the sort of key points that, that tend to happen once an audit has been triggered? Thanks, Andrew. So as we've discussed, the starting point will be a request or more usually a notification of the requirement for an audit. And it's either going to be based on the type of contractual provisions that Pete and Andrew have already mentioned, or it's going to be based upon a suggestion that there is already over-deployment and therefore copyright infringement or misuse of software or data has taken place, which needs addressing by way of an audit. If it's latter, those audit requests or demands can be quite strong and aggressively worded. But the important thing, obviously, is to try and quickly work out what the requirements for audit are under the contractual terms that you've got. Now, whilst you might not agree that there are valid reasons for an audit, it's quite likely that you will end up having to go through one, although you may have some leeway on timing. If, for example, the business is undergoing a certain change at the time, it might make sense and the vendor might accept that there's an appropriate time for the audit to take place. So what we see is that audits tend to run more smoothly when the IT and compliance team and in-house legal resource, if you have it, have pulled together from the beginning it's not necessarily because the request for an audit needs an external or heavy legal response, but it's simply because of the time needed to assist the IT team and compliance to ascertain the position of what's gone on in the estate that then needs to be audited. So when you get that request for an audit, there are tasks that you are going to need 
to undertake. And they are identifying the correct contractual documentation for a start. And as Pete set out, that can be quite complex a task in itself because there may just be one set of terms or there may be multiple sets. They may change over time. You may have maintenance in the mix. You may not. You may have software keys you need to identify. So that in itself can be quite a difficult task for IT and compliance to get to the bottom of. You also need to see what the terms say about the right to audit and whether there is anything else around how the audit is going to be conducted and what is going to happen on the outcome. You know, obviously, you're checking to make sure that the licensor's request is consistent with the agreed upon terms in the contract. It's also sensible at this stage, we think, to start gathering information from the business. For example, has this product set been audited before? If so, when was the last audit? What was the outcome? Who are the key users in the business and who's responsible for deployment? What you're really doing at this stage, even early on, is looking to understand the internal position on use of this software as quickly as possible. So you may also clearly, when you start looking at it, see what has prompted the audit. For example, if you've undergone any of the recent factors that Andrew's just mentioned a moment ago, that may well tell you what the licensor is concerned about, and it will help you with the second stage of the process. And this stage is, is really one of the most important stages, but we often see it sort of pass through without too much comment. And it's really what we call the pre-audit agreement stage. So even a very well-run audit can have the potential to be disruptive to the business. So it's important that attention is paid beforehand in the run-up to the audit so that everybody knows what's going on. An agreement has been reached as to what is being audited and how that is going to happen. So you may well need some sort of agreement that sets that out. We have seen formal agreements on that, but equally it can be done by an exchange of emails as long as what you've got is clarity on the scope of the method of the audit at that stage. So the pre-audit stage will require an exchange of information on both sides. The licensor is going to need to explain what scripts it wants to deploy to conduct the audit and how they work. Usually they're automated and they're written by the licensor, but there might be sensitivities around compatibility and what the script is actually identifying. The licensee might want to review the script that may need to be adapted. And obviously, the outcome of that is the licensor and the licensee both need to have a high degree of comfort that the scripts are not going to cause business operational issues when they're run. You also need, as I said, clear agreement around the scope of the audit. And if there are any restrictions or limitations on what can be audited sensibly, then those need to be spelt out and agreed at this stage. So basically, it is vital for everybody to understand what's being counted and how, because if there are misunderstandings about how products are used or deployed at this stage, they can lead to a flawed audit report. And what we see is that that will often exacerbate the dispute and lead to frustrations on both sides because they haven't quite managed to capture the audit information, which really is going to unlock things and ensure that uh, licensing is sort of complete going forwards. So from a legal point of view, we often see that the technical staff can get along very well with these audit processes and work very happily together. But ultimately, it's a process with the legal consequences. So it's important that the IT and compliance team understand that, you know, that they shouldn't be making unguarded admissions at this stage unless it has been agreed within the licensee that, you know, there is an issue and, and it's going to be sort of tackled head on in advance of the audit, in which case that may actually narrow the scope to start with. It obviously depends on a case-by-case -case basis. We do often see customer licensees who are struggling to understand the outcome of the audit and a claim that has then crystallised and is made against them because they haven't fully understood the way the script was running and counting relevant metrics in advance of the audit. You are therefore playing catch-up at that time. But if you put the work in at this pre-audit stage, by the time the audit takes place, 
often the issues within the business have already been spotted and you can start having internal discussions with the business before you get into discussions with a vendor about how to regularise the position. The next step is the audit itself, which obviously is quite straightforward usually. However, obviously, if auditors are on site, then communications and access to information and areas in the business, they should be controlled as appropriate, especially regarding securing other third-party information and data which may be held within the business. So assuming that the audit is, is taking place using automated scripts across infrastructure, as we said, it's important to understand what those scripts are doing and how the usage of the software is countered in different technical situations. Bearing in mind that if you've got virtualization or multiple users using a single PC, all of these things needed to be taken account of. But as we say, that's why the pre-audit stage is so important. What usually happens next is an initial report, which is the sort of preliminary figures of deployment. And it's used to frame the discussion in terms of complexities and difficulties. They can be used by licensors to test assumptions or to start discussions or even just to get the attention of the key stakeholders in the licensee. And equally, the licensee can look at these initial reports and see if the audit looks to be showing the picture it thought would emerge or if something else has, is in fact going on. If there are meetings or correspondence in this sort of initial report stage, then obviously legal should be consulted to consider if these discussions should be without prejudice to allow for a free flowing discussion, particularly if it's technical aspects and whether they should or shouldn't include legal representatives and should just focus on the technical. All of those things can be possible and can be managed, but you just want to make sure that free discussion can take place and that things that are said in those meetings are not held against either side at a later date if there was no intention that that should be the case. And then what normally happens is you get a final report and the final audit report, as well as having recording the instances of software that the um, scripts have revealed, it also tends then to recite the number of licenses by the relevant metric and concludes with a reconciliation and a conclusion, which may well be a significant shortfall in licensing or difficulty with the type of license. At that point, things can go legal quite quickly. It might be because the supplier determines that the IT team simply can't authorise the expenditure required to fix the shortfall. Or it can be because the licensee objects to the interpretation of the audit results or the licensing picture that has been concluded and presented by the vendor. So when the final report is presented, often that is at the point where the dispute will crystallise with a large claim from a software vendor. And obviously, the basis of these claims varies from instance to instance, but we do see trends in the type of things that are leading to these significant vendor claims. So, Andrew, what sort of trends have we seen recently on these disputes? So in terms of trends, I mean, the, at the end of the day, the disputes will always manifest themselves as in terms of exceeding the scope of the license. But the question will be why? So as we said earlier, I mean, it's very easy to go over a number of users, for example. That's, that's a, a main uh, metric which is very commonly seen. Um, the important thing there is to have central management of licensing volumes and, and so on. So we've seen examples where that has gone wrong, um, where things like you know the, the license keys that are needed to install software being posted on the internet, uh, the intranet for everyone to see within the organization. Of course, at that point, nothing's policing who's, who's installing those and how many copies they're installing. So it's really important to have tight controls um, for installing and managing software within your organization to make sure that you're staying within the license volumes. You also can't rely on, on, on the vendor to police any of that. So um, a license key in practice will generally install OK from a technical perspective, um, even if it's being used outside of scope. So you can't assume that just because the software permits you to do something when you install it, that you're actually allowed to in the context of the underlying legal license. 
that point also turns up in the context of different versions of software as, as well. So many software packages come in standard, professional, enterprise, um, you know, lots of different license varieties. But again, just because the, the licensing key entitles, well, it will work as technically on, on the full fat version of, of that software doesn't mean that that's the version that you should be installing and that you're entitled to use. We often also see technicalities being raised around things like geographical scope and, and the wrong entities using licenses. So, for example, you might have a multiple subsidiaries within your company. It's quite easy for an employee that's employed by a different subsidiary to install something without realizing that it's a problem. So we see that turning up quite often as well. We also see problems on the data side. So um, software might be licensed for processing a certain volume or type of data for specific purposes. Data volumes only ever seem to go up and the purposes for which people use it only ever seem to expand. So watch out for exceeding those licensed volumes over time. Your, your IT teams need to know that they need to have recourse to legal before you know, increasing the scope of usage of any type of data or, or, or software. We also see changes in terms of the land, licensing landscape as well. For example, where court cases come out that change the way that, that particular clauses might be construed. Pete mentioned it earlier, but virtualization turns up uh, an awful lot as well. Um, there can be significant disputes around how you count like, instances of processes, cores, and so on, where you're running on virtualized infrastructure. Basically, the, the technology in some cases has overtaken um, the wording in an aging license agreement that doesn't cater for it. So how all of this ultimately manifests itself is the demand for a large amount of backdated license fees and, and maintenance fees. So, Pete, can you tell us a bit about how those claims are normally formulated? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. So, I'd say this is another area, actually, which is often heavily disputed in a contentious audit situation, which is how much is any over-deployment claim actually worth to the vendor and what is owed by the customer? Now, there are two mechanisms for the vendor to try to recover funds from the customer in the event of a uh, over-deployment. It can go by a contractual claim or it could sue for IP infringement, uh, especially copyright. And those are the two means by which damages could be calculated. So the first of those uh, contractual damages would aim to put the vendor in a position it would have been in had the contract been performed. So that would usually be a claim for license fees, as in what would you have had to pay for the overdeployment that currently you haven't paid for? And that's usually how the vendor approaches it. In these sorts of situations, they will essentially present a bill for license fees due to them for the period of the overdeployment and for any support or maintenance fees which are due against that. And they will say, looking at their contract, that you would have had to have support in place for these licenses. So even if you didn't actually have it, because our contract says you should have it, you've got to pay for that as well. The other way damages can be calculated is based on IP, as I said, on copyright. And those are damages that aim to compensate the vendor for the infringement. So what loss the infringement has actually caused them. And that would be infringement in the software code and any other assets which are comprised part of the software, such as graphic interfaces, sounds, any other uh, artistic components which are included in the software. Now, there are several bases on which IP damages could be calculated. The most common one is the notional license fees. So that would be, and that's especially common in audit situations, because the vendor is unlikely to actually lost business as such because of the infringement or suffered any other form of loss that can be easily measured. Their claim is effectively that they've lost license fees they would have otherwise recovered. 
So in that sense, you're then looking at what reasonable parties in the position of the vendor and the customer would have agreed to permit the infringing activity. Uh, just as a side note, under an IP claim, a vendor could also alternatively seek an account of the profits made by the customer by virtue of the infringing activity, but that's pretty uncommon in audit disputes, and it's not something I've personally ever seen. They would always really go for damages, and actually, they would normally always put it in terms of contractual damages that they are owed, usually. Um, and contractual damages would tend to apply where there's a breach of a term. Actually, in these situations, it can often be said that IP damages are more likely to apply because where the customer simply commits unlicensed use of the software, i.e. it doesn't have enough user seats for the deployment and it's gone way over, arguably they're simply infringing copyright in the software that's been deployed to the unlicensed users. Although sometimes the contract does provide specifically for what happens in the event of a deployment. And in that case, you might be back looking at contractual damages. So it's important to check the terms of the contracts quite closely to see if it specifies what happens in the event of a breach or no deployment. As I mentioned at the start, there's often significant disputes over these sort of bills and, fit and damages which might be due. So, for example, if a customer had a license to use the software but went outside its terms, so perhaps it used it for a purpose that wasn't included within the permitted purposes in the license, there might be a debate as to whether a whole new license and a whole new license fee is due for that use because it's effectively a new license, which is what the vendor will say often is due, or should there just be a charge, an additional fee on top of the license that the customer has already obtained for that additional permission? So for that additional purpose, which wasn't already licensed. And normally the customer will be advocating for that because they'll say, well, that's lower. I've already got a license. I just need to pay for an extra permission on top of that permission, what I was actually doing. And to resolve those sorts of disputes, you might be looking at how the licensors behaved previously. And indeed, in the context of IP, damages, how other reasonable licenses might act in the area. But often it often comes down to a bit of a negotiation between the parties. A similar debate happens when you've got a situation just clear over deployment. So it's not so much that you're using outside of the purposes which were licensed, but actually you've just not got enough licenses. A dispute that you often see is over what price those additional licenses which were overdeployed should be at because often vendors will offer discounts to their customers when they come to sign the contract at the outset, often quite significant discounts off the list price they have. But then if there's an over-deployment situation, it's not uncommon for vendors to say, well, these are now, these over-deployed licenses are now payable at the full rate at the list price as opposed to that discounted rate. And that often can then lead to arguments between the parties as to whether those list prices are effectively real. Are they actually prices that are charged by the vendor or are they more of a, a sort of almost a penalty clause in the sense that they're not really charged to anybody, but they're leveled when there is a breach of the license and an overdeployment by the vendor. And again, that can get into quite contentious and, and heavy disputes in terms of how those might apply, because the difference is when you're talking about an overdeployment, and you might have tens of thousands or even more overdeployed licenses. Those numbers very quickly can get very, very large when you're looking at a, a difference of X percent between the list price and the discounted price per license. And these issues are often also quite difficult for vendors because ultimately, if the issue of the question was to go to court, then they would have to give disclosure on the license fees that they charge potentially across their customer base in order to demonstrate whether or not these list prices are are realistic or not. And for obvious reasons, 
that's something that most vendors won't want to do. So that can be a bit of a pressure point for them. There can also be arguments around acquiescence and estoppel when you're looking at damages. And that's especially the case where the vendor has been quite involved in actually building the environment for the customer. So it's not uncommon to have situations where in the event of an audit, the vendor comes saying, you know, clearly you are overdeployed in terms of the number of users you've got, and also potentially you're using it outside of the agreed purpose for this software. And the customer responds by saying that the vendor actually installed and built by environment using the licensed software, knew how many people uh, were taking a license and knew what the purpose of it was. And then we'll say, well, you can't now come to me and say that this user is not licensed on the basis of this potentially quite old license and you now overload more money for it. And, and that, again, can be quite contentious. And at times it involves looking back over documents, looking back over communications that happened at the time to establish what was actually said between the parties. And it can be used both on a contractual argument around the stop on acquiescence and also potentially if the damage has been calculated in respect of IP infringement on the basis of whether there was some sort of implied license granted for the use or the overdeployment because of the fact that the vendor knew what was going on. Another thing it's common to have raise itself as an issue is whether there's a threat that the services will be withdrawn if an agreement isn't reached over the damages or the fees that are due. Sometimes that can come from the vendor saying, if you don't agree in the next X you know, period of time, next weeks, we will have to cut off access to the software. Or sometimes it's just something the customer raises because they're very concerned about the possibility. Because often this enterprise level software is fundamental to the customer's business. It may be crucial back office accounting systems or it may be built into a service they offer to their customer base. And therefore it's business critical effectively. And they're very concerned about the potential for withdrawal by the vendor. So in that scenario, it's not uncommon for the customer, especially if it's been raised in correspondence by the vendor or in communications, for the customer to seek some form of undertakings that the vendor will not cut off services or support. Um, and if they don't get it, they may well be going to get an injunction from court. And that's uh, not, it, it's not that common because vendors and customers tend to want to do business together. Uh, in the future and therefore they don't want to go down this road but it's also not it's not unheard of and you do see a number of these injunctions especially perhaps where the customer is planning to move away from the vendor anyway and therefore that sort of relationship isn't likely to continue for much longer and those injunctions they usually sort of put as prohibitory injunctions in the sense that the customer would be trying to get an injunction that maintains the status quo by prohibiting the vendor from cutting off access. And the reason it's often put in that way is partly because one of the tests for whether injunction will be granted is to, is to seek to maintain the status quo between the parties. And the customer will be saying, well, the status quo is I should retain access to this software because if I don't, it will destroy my business, et cetera. Whereas the harm to the vendor if I continue to use it and it turns out, you know, that actually I was I was in breach and I should have been paying, it's simply that they will be owed more license fees from me, which I'll be able to pay. So actually these injunctions are quite often granted. So I think vendors should usually be wary of taking drastic steps to cut off access uh, to software in the event of these audit disputes, especially well without you know carefully analyzing the legal merits of the position. So moving on, when, when faced with these sorts of claims, Andrew, what can be done by customers to, to check their liability and, and also what levers can be used to, to reach a settlement between the parties? So the, the key really to um, settling these sorts of disputes is, is, is to find the middle ground. Normally what will happen is vendors will supply a complex spreadsheet or some other analysis that seeks to map the um, licensing entitlement to the actual deployment. 
often how precisely that is done will make a big difference to the ultimate under or over licensing figures. So what happens then is that who's right as between the vendor and the licensee on each of the legal points that are in dispute um, will then in practice determine how that mapping works and that in turn determines what the end figure is that both parties have as their position. So the result of that is that there's often quite a bit of what-if type analysis that needs to be done to work out what the respective size position is and how that actually translates to the amounts being demanded. Part of that as well is to do a sensitivity analysis. In other words, you know, if you're right or you're wrong on a particular point, what difference does it make to the underlying total? On some of the matters that we've, we've worked on, we've, we've written software to undertake that analysis automatically for us so that we can play with those figures quite quickly, uh, accurately, and, and, and without incurring too much cost on, on, on the legal side. Obviously, the, the aim of the vendor is to ensure that use going forwards is within its license terms um, and it's receiving the appropriate license and support fees. But it, equally, that in some ways is also the objective of the licensee. So in other words, um, as a licensee, you'd want to get certainty around your position and make sure the dispute has gone away. And if it has gone away, that it's gone away for a guaranteed minimum period. So you're not having the same conversation with the vendor again in a few years' time. So to the extent that you you manage to get through all of this, um, ultimately what you'll need to do is document the settlement. Um, and when you're doing that, you'll need to cater both for the past position as well as the, the future. So Heather, I mean, what sort of things is it important to include in those sorts of settlement agreements and, and how should they proceed in terms of trying to, to get to that point? So obviously, where a formal claim has been made, it's important for the licensee in particular that any settlement is properly and legally recorded. But I'm going to proceed on the basis that where a formal demand has been made, proceedings have not actually been issued in the dispute. On that basis, you tend to have party to party negotiations. And whilst they will be looking to settle the dispute that has crystallised, they can also turn into a mini procurement exercise where additional licences are needed simply because there is a need to paper the requirements of the licensee going forward. So it's key that the, the licensee team are, are aware of the licensee's business requirements and intentions looking into the future to ensure that this agreement and settlement that's reached is future-proofed. For example, there is no point accepting an offered five-year license term if there's an intention to transition off the software or to divest the main part of the business that uses those licences unless they happen to be freely transferable and can be divested with the business. So it's important that the legal function and the business work together to work out what the best outcome is going to be for the licensee. Similarly, the licensor will want to ensure that it's encouraging the licensee to adhere to the terms of the licenses going forwards and also to make further future purchases if and where it's appropriate. So for the licensor, these negotiations can be an opportunity to learn a bit more about the business and to get closer to the business and, and seek to get more embedded. So obviously, the exact terms of settlement depend on the scope of the dispute, but broadly, they will need to deal with regularising the licensing position prior to the settlement to the extent that there was any underdeployment, possibly a payment of compensation or damages to recognise that by way of past licence fees that may be due, and then additional licensing and or maintenance agreements as needed going forwards. There's also the opportunity for both sides to possibly agree terms of business between the parties going forward. For example, for the licensee to seek to secure offers in relation to upgrades or additional licenses and maintenances at a discount for a period going forwards or in relation to completely new products. So any settlement agreement is obviously going to need to set out the scope of the dispute. So it needs to be very clear what the scope of the audit undertaken was, 
so that it's then you can define the scope of the dispute which is actually being settled and included. So if, for example, the same vendor provides different products and you've only audited one and the dispute only relates to that, it has to be quite clear that that is the scope of the settlement for both sides. You also need, and this can be quite tricky, some sort of wording that explains what the dispute is. And, and quite often we see vendors seeking wording which requires the customer to accept that there was a deliberate default on terms of the agreement or some sort of deliberate wrongdoing. And obviously customers are not usually inclined to give that sort of wording. However, there's usually a form of words that can be agreed upon that will act to record the settlement to the satisfaction of both parties. And the way it is recorded, as I'll come on to in a minute, also can be driven by how the payment is being structured. So the other thing that a licensor might seek to do is to deal with a request from a customer for a statement, for example, that the deployment of software and licensing as agreed under the settlement agreement will constitute a fully licensed position, i.e. they have no net liability. However, often the licensor will resist that simply because it's based on one audit and it hasn't had a full chance to uncover all aspects of the business. So again, that can be something that is a subject of quite a lot of discussion and toing and throwing. Obviously, the extent to which new products and maintenance are being taken should be set out in detail, including the prices and the duration of the license. And you need to work out which terms and conditions are going to apply going forwards. And often the licensor will seek to use this as an opportunity to update the terms and conditions that apply, particularly where the dispute has arisen out of old historic terms and conditions and technology has moved on for all the reasons that we've spoken about. And therefore, you know, it is actually in both parties' interest to update those terms and conditions so they do actually apply to what is going on in the business at that particular moment. Having been through an audit which results in a dispute, often customers will then want an audit holiday to ensure that the business realises the value from the settlement and they have certainty that they won't be subjected to another audit for a set period of time. In contrast, there may be occasions where a licensor requires a limited further audit to ensure that action a licensee is agreed to take to regularise the use of the product across its estate has in fact been implemented. As an alternative, a customer can suggest no audit, but perhaps some sort of formal statement of compliance, such as a witness statement from a, an office holder of the licensee is given instead. I mean, again, that is something that we will see debate and toing and froing about. To the extent that there are business transitions that are imminent, there may be a need for some sort of transitional services provisions. If there's a need for uh, additional software or services for a short period of time, then that can happen. And again, this is where you get into a sort of mini procurement and perhaps a whole other agreement being negotiated as part of the settlement. And finally, I'm going to come back to this point about payment because the tax considerations of any settlement should obviously be considered in the usual way for any commercial arrangement. However, in software audit disputes, there is often a difference in tax treatment for payments of sums for settlement of a past infringement claim and payment for sums for new software. Equally, the jurisdiction of the license and the place of payment and receipt can also have a significant impact on tax treatment. And both of these points may be a driver as to how the settlement is structured. So when you get to discussing settlement structure, it's always quite important to get the finance side involved to check those. So finally, just one word in terms of post-settlement management. Obviously, the key to making sure that a settlement runs smoothly is to ensure that the obligations are fulfilled within the time periods provided for in the settlement agreement. If the licensee has settled on the basis that software is being phased out or replaced or user numbers are changed, then it's important that those business plans go forwards. If they don't, and there can be changes at fairly short notice, 
then it's important that the business manages that proactively and deals with it rather than putting itself in breach of contract for settlement. We do occasionally see it. But what we find is that most parties, having been through a dispute and settlement procedure, are keen to make sure that the relationship then works going forwards. So those are the key points around settlement, Andrew. Thanks so much, Heather and Pete. That brings the podcast to, to the end. We've obviously covered a lot of ground during the podcast, so hopefully you've found that useful. Please do join our Future Tech Disputes podcast as well. Um, but in the meantime, if you have any queries on anything that we've raised today, then please do not hesitate to reach out to us. Thank you very much.